Hi, everyone. Drew Prod here from the Broken Brain Podcast. On today's podcast, we have world-renowned surgeon, Dr. Stephen Gundry, here with us today, a friend of mine, talking to us about his brand new book, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. And boy, do we go deep. Dr. Gundry is quite the contrarian, and many of his views are a little different than some of the views that you might have heard out there in the health world, but I always appreciate a deep conversation with somebody trying to educate us about things that we may not see or know about. And that's exactly what we do. We dive deep into the topic of lectins, which is probably what Dr. Gundry is most well known about, this idea of how certain proteins in plants can be causing us harm. Even foods that we think are healthy for us could actually not be that healthy for us. So we're going to talk all about that. We're also going to go deep into the topic of blue zones and what Dr. Gundry thinks that the blue zones are doing right. And maybe, maybe how we got some of the things that they're doing wrong and what that can mean when it comes to implications on our own health and the foods that work best for our body and of course our brain. Super fascinating interview, stay tuned. By the way, if you don't know, we've launched a video version of the Broken Brain Podcast. We're posting episodes on YouTube. Check out the show notes and you can watch the entire episode of Dr. Gundry and I in person here at our studio in Santa Monica. Okay, now on to my formal intro for Dr. Stephen Gundry. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowit. Each week on this podcast, we invite a new guest who we think can improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry is a renowned heart surgeon, three-time New York Times bestselling author, and a medical researcher. He is the author of the following books, Diet Evolution, The Planet Paradox, the Plant Paradox Cookbook, The Plant Paradox 30, and his newest release, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. After a distinguished surgical career as a professor and chairman of the cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University, Dr. Gundry changed his focus to exterminating modern diseases with dietary changes. Based on his findings, after two decades of research, Dr. Gundry is now the leading expert on the lectin-free diet, which we're going to dive into in this podcast, as the key to reversing disease and boosting longevity. He's also the director of the International Heart and Lung Institute in Palm Springs, California, and the founder and director of the Center for Restorative Medicine in Palm Springs and Santa Barbara, where he treats patients seven days a week. Still treating patients? Absolutely. I got patients Saturday and Sunday this Amazing. weekend. He's also the co-founder of his own supplement line with a dear mutual friend of ours. Uh, it's called Dr. Gundry MD, Gundry MD, and the host of the weekly Dr. Gundry podcast. Check it all out. It's in the show notes. Dr. Gundry, thank you for being here on the Broken Brain Podcast. Drew, it's great to see you again, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. So many people out there know what it looks like to die old and sick. We have plenty of examples of that in our society. Right. Paint us a picture of what it looks like for the opposite, the subtitle of your book, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. Well, you know, I'm actually the only nutritionist who has actually lived and practiced in a blue zone, which I think Loma Linda, California. Loma Linda, right. And I've, you know, I've had the pleasure of studying lots of super old people. And then when I moved my practice to Palm Springs, uh, they don't call Palm Springs God's waiting room for nothing. Uh, I have a huge practice in 
super old people, folks 95 and above. And these are not folks that we associate with being in a nursing home, you know, drooling in their oatmeal and really not, not knowing where they are. These are people who are active, they're walking their dogs, they're enjoying social activities. Uh, the one that I really changed my life 20 years ago when I moved my practice to Palm Springs is Edith Murray. Who yeah, I call, who, you, uh, who you have in your dedication to the book. Yeah, and you know Edith, I call Michelle in all, in all the books, but uh, we've outed her this time around. And Edith I met when she was in her early 90s, and I actually thought uh, she was 65 uh, when I met her. I had to look at her notes. I said, there's no way this woman is you know, 92. And yet she was in three-inch heels. She had a gorgeous head of hair. And actually her picture starts the book at 105 and a half holding my Plant Paradox book. Now, she was in two-inch wedgies in that picture because she had fallen and broken her hip, tripped in the bathroom at 101 and a half. And I really thought that that was going to be her demise. As most people know, once you break a hip, um, that's usually a downward spiral. But she fooled me. She bounced right back. In fact, she called me from her hospital bed and said, get me out of here. They're trying to kill me. Uh, <laughs> true. And we actually rehabbed her at home. So what, I, what I've been able to find and study in these people is, okay, why is it that these people were able to avoid what we consider, quote, normal aging? How did they avoid you know, having two knees replaced? How did they avoid heart surgery or stents? How did they avoid not remembering, you know, where they are anymore? And there are keys on how to do that. And the book is, okay, you want to do that? Here's, here's how to do it. Yeah. And some of those keys could be seen a little bit contrarian compared to the things that are out there right now. Yeah. In fact, a major part of your book is dedicated towards myth busting. Correct. Because often what we think is what you're saying in the book and what you teach, often what we think is leading to old age and staying healthy may not be the case. That's exactly right. So we're, and we're going to talk about okay. that. Um, I want to just know, before we jump into all these things, in your own personal life, so much of what's possible for many people comes back to what examples did they see in their own life? In your own life, with your, with your own parents or grandparents, did you see... Did you have any examples of people in your own world and who were aging healthy, uh, or was it the opposite? Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, the, the two big comparisons, my great-grandmother on my mother's side uh, lived to one month before her 100th birthday, and she lived in a, in a three-story house in Omaha, Nebraska, and she took care of uh, my spinster aunt, and this woman had her bedroom on the third floor of the house. And we used to visit all the time because she actually lived nearby. And we can get into why elders are really important to have in, in your social network. But she, my, my sister and I would always say, boy, you know, great grandma, why do you, you know, you should bring your bedroom downstairs. You shouldn't have to go up three flights of stairs several times a day. And she said, no, that's my bedroom. And you know, looking back, you go, well, of course, that's one of the reasons she, you know, got to 100 years of age, because she was walking those stairs multiple times a day, and never would have considered 
bringing it back down. And it was part of her routine. And I guess like one of the takeaways from the Blue Zones, and I know there's a lot of things that we can talk about with the Blue Zones, some that you agree with, some that you maybe disagree with with the findings on. But one of the takeaways of the Blue Zones is these societies, these long living societies are not going to the gym. They're working exercise into their everyday life. Correct. They, interesting, they all live in a hilly community. And Loma Linda actually means beautiful hill. And so I think the process of working against gravity in your daily life, in your exercises, and I make a big point of this in the book, if you do nothing else, working against gravity may be one of the big secrets of life because you're actually using your large muscle groups in your thighs and your butt. And about 70% of all our muscle mass are, is in those groups of muscles. When I was young, I would see my uh, grandmother on my dad's side. She would, it's very common in India that when people are sweeping the floors with these long sort of like wooden, wooden twig sweepers, they will squat down. Squatting is a very common activity in many other countries. We've kind of lost that here. And, uh, you know, in her, in her seventies would be squatting down and sweeping the floor. And I used to feel like, like, like grandmother, like we have like a cleaner, like we don't need you to like sweep and clean up. And she was like, no, this is like just part of what makes me feel good. And, uh, it's funny because I would look at that as like, why is she doing that? She doesn't need to, but they're actually, she could have known something intrinsically that I didn't know at that time and of how helpful those activities are. Yeah, I think, you know, this idea of, you know, constant activity, my my mother uh, liked to get down on her hands and knees and scrub floors. You know, you know, long after she, you know, there were mops and things like that and she said, "No, no, you know, this this makes me feel good. This is far more important." Uh I'll never forget a, a gentleman who uh was a orderly, actually a janitor in the first hospital I ever worked on in Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was a scrub tech on, on the night shift. And this guy cleaned floors, and all he did was mop the floor all, all day, all night. And he always had an unlit cigar in his mouth, and he had this huge smile on his face, and he was always humming and you know smiling. And after a few months, I, you know, I came up to him. I said, you know, you are the happiest guy I've ever met. And I'm thinking, you know, smart kid from Yale. I said, you know, this guy, why is he he's so happy? He's a janitor. And he says, well, let me tell you something. He says, you guys have to have good light to do what you do, to operate. And if I have the floors nice and shiny, the light reflects better. So if I can do that, you guys can see better. So I've got the best job in the world. Wow. And, you know, I've always took that to heart. Uh, he, you know, he found this great purpose in his life, which had great importance. And that's, you know, man, I never forgot that. Find the purpose in everything exactly. that you do. Um, I want to talk about more about the Seventh-day Adventist community. Mm -hmm. Uh, what were some of the things that you noticed? You know, you said that you've had the pleasure of living and working in a blue zone and working with these individuals. Give us some of the comparing and contrast of what you noticed that these individuals were doing that was creating longevity for them. I think that the best thing I took away from the blue zones, uh, for, well, that blue zone, first of all, they ate a very high fat diet which shocked me when I got there. Uh, their diet is 50% fat. Even the vegans who are the longest living of that community, uh, Dr. Gary Frazier, 
who I got to know, has studied the Adventist health and looked at all the particulars. And even the vegans eat a 50% fat diet. And you wouldn't necessarily walk away with that conclusion if you read the Blue Zones or some of the summary articles. Correct. For those that don't know, there's these Blue Zones around the world. And one of the core teachings out of it was that, well, there's minimal animal foods and there seems to be minimal fat in the diet. And what you're saying is that percentage-wise of the calories, at least in Loma Linda, it was 50%. Where were those fats coming from? Interestingly, a huge amount was coming from nuts. Uh, the Adventist diet has a large amount of nuts. And I make a very strong point uh, in multiple ways that nuts should be a very important uh, part of a long-lived person's diet. Uh, I have particular favorites, walnuts, pistachios, Peeled almonds are okay. I want people to stay away from nuts that are not nuts, peanuts and cashews, but maybe we can get into that. But nuts are a huge part of their diet. And the other thing that was fascinating to me is their major protein source is actually uh, defatted soybeans, which are then extruded under high pressure and high heat to make, make this funny sounding stuff called TVP, right. texturized vegetable protein. That you can basically, anybody who's been uh, vegan before or like knows about that, it's often what a lot of fake maybe meats early exactly. on were made out of yep. uh, before the industry got maybe a little bit more processed early days. You could actually buy it in bulk at the health food store. That's exactly right. So mm -hmm. tell us, what are the core ingredients? And then you added in the layer of uh, of how it's prepared that made it healthy for them. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I you know, looking back, uh, I never understood why they used pressurization and heat in, in making this. But as I write about in the book, they are cleverer by far than I would have known. Uh, soybeans and beans in general have a large amount of plant defensive compounds, which are called lectins. Right. And the way we uh, destroy lectins or make them harmless is pressure cooking, high heat and high temperature. And I was fascinated that the main staple of the Adventists had been pressurized uh, soybeans under high heat. Which is great that you clarified that in the book and you talk about that in the book. I would say that, you know, there's so many debates out there of what diets are the best diets. And there's a strong contingency of vegetarian vegans who are probably not the biggest fans of yours because they feel that you have maybe, in their words, demonized certain foods that were a core part of their diet, like beans and lentils. But here you are, you're saying that these foods are actually can be hugely beneficial. And in this case, part of a main staple of this community, but it's all based on how it's prepared. That's exactly right. And, you know, when you when you look, and I, I spend a lot of time going to various blue zones or other long-lived communities, and I talk about several of them that didn't make the original blue zone that should be blue zones. And part of the interesting way that they detoxify problems in foods is preparation. And for instance, with beans, traditional cultures always soak their beans usually at least 24 hours, usually 48 hours. And they're changing the water every few hours because uh, lectins come out of solution in beans and they come into the water and you pour them out. 
And I have nothing against, you know, a traditional culture cooking beans after being soaked. Lentils are probably the safest of the pulses and legumes because they have actually the most protein and, and the least starch, and they're very thin surface, so you can get lectins out of them very quickly. And in fact, as I talk about in the book, lentils are a rich source of this crazy compounds called polyamines, which may be the secret to the Acciarolis, this little town south of Naples, Italy, uh, where they have more people over 100 years of age per population anywhere in the world. 30% of the population is over 100. That's incredible. Um, Let's zoom back out because for those that are listening to this podcast and they're hearing this term lectins <laughs> and they're not familiar with it, give us the breakdown. Why is so much of your work uh, focused around this concept of lectins, these plant proteins? What are they and what's the problem of why you're saying we should be avoiding them? So plants have a defense system against being eaten and they have developed this defense system because plants, unlike animals, can't move and they can't fight and they can't hide. So they use lectins, which are sticky proteins that are designed simplistically to make an animal ill or to think twice about eating either the plant or more specifically a plant baby. So an evolutionary self-defense mechanism that was brought into a plant's DNA as more animals started to evolve on this earth. Yeah, correct. And plants, you know, were here on earth so long before animals arrived. And the first animals that were plant predators were insects. And there's some pretty compelling evidence that I give in the plant paradox that lectins, among other things, paralyze insects by hitting sugar molecules that occur between nerve endings and prevent that transmission. And actually, just this week, I was visiting with a patient in New York City, just to use an example, who had been told by his neurologist that he had peripheral neuropathy and there was nothing he could do about it. And so we put him on a lectin-limited diet, and within two months, his peripheral neuropathy was completely resolved. And he says, why doesn't my neurologist know about this? I, so... Um, I'm telling them now. And so talk about some of the foods that are out there that are common that have higher amounts of lectins. Um, but before we get into like the preparation of how to like make them lectins safe yeah. or minimize the lectins inside of there, but what are the common foods that are out there that people are eating that have higher amounts of lectins? Yeah, so the common foods are grains and pseudo grains. Um, the lectins in general are on the hull of the grain. So for instance, one of the things that I think has been a huge detriment to our society is the use of whole grain goodness. Cultures traditionally have taken the hull off of grains before they eat them. You will not see a lot of whole grain pasta in Italy. You will not see a lot of whole grain croissants in France. We've traditionally taken the hull off of grains. Four billion people use rice as their staple, and four billion people eat white rice, not brown rice. Right. Rice is actually one of your uh, main uh, examples that why taking the hull off of rice. So as many people, some people know, some people don't know when you go to the health food store and you buy brown rice, that's maybe rice in its original form, but we don't traditionally eat that in India and other societies. We spend 
I mean, if you look at the process of what it takes to take brown rice and turn it into white rice, it's quite an intensive process. That's exactly right. But And your argument is, why do we spend all this time? Why have cultures traditionally spent all this time to remove the hull? Maybe they know something that we don't know. So what's in the hull that's causing challenges? So the hulls contain these lectins. There are a few hullless grains. Uh, I was just in Ethiopia two weeks ago, and teff is their major grain, and teff does not have a lectin. Sorghum and millet do not have lectins because they're actually hullless grains, but all the other ones have hulls. And so something like brown rice, which I was looking into, kind of came out in popularity in the U.S. in like the 60s yep. as the nutrition movement started. And we started having like nutritional analysis. And the analysis on brown rice was, well, it has more vitamins and nutrients. Correct. And white rice by itself is just seen as like a simple carbohydrate. So why eat that? Why not eat the whole thing? And you're saying we're missing the boat. Yeah. And let's we'll step back a minute. Interestingly enough, we have a major defense system. We have multiple defense systems against lectins. This is a, you know, this is a balance of power. Plants don't want to be eaten, and animals obviously want to eat plants. And so plants build up defense systems against being eaten, and animals develop, you know, offenses and defenses against the plants' defense. And our microbiome, which I spend you know, a huge amount of all my books talking about, and even more in this book, our microbiome has actually evolved to handle the lectins that we consume. And unfortunately, for instance, grains and beans have only entered our diet in the last 10,000 years. Uh, rice, for instance, is only 8,000 years old. White uh, rice, traditionally, as societies have eaten it, you're saying it's 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 about eight thousand years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That rice was which genetically is very recent. Very recent. Very and, recent. And I think the less time we've had of exposure to a certain uh, particle in plants, the less we have a, a bacterial species that can eat it. We do have a bacterial species that is known to eat gluten and likes gluten. Uh, gluten, by the way, is a lectin. And when people stop eating gluten and are sensitive to it, that actually bacterial species leaves because it has nothing to eat. Then when they re-expose themselves to gluten, there's no defense against them and they really react to it. So what's happened that I talk a lot about in the plant paradox in, and in the longevity paradox is we pretty much wiped out this microbiome of ours because of, among other things, the antibiotics that we take willy-nilly still, and the antibiotics that have been fed to almost all the cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, and even fish that we eat. And so this huge, vast defense system against lectins that has evolved to handle this has pretty much been wiped out. And so people don't realize that traditional cultures have an intact microbiome system because they're not eating this food. So when, when say, people look at the blue zones and say, well, these people eat, you know, rice and beans. And beans is, was actually the number one food. The conclusion, you know, Dan Buettner going on TV is telling everybody, what can we learn from the blue zones? They eat a lot of beans. Yeah, and he's absolutely wrong. And I go into that. Uh, for instance, the, the Okinawans, the only official study of the Okinawan diet was done in 1949 by the U.S. government as an occupying force. And it's published. Google it. Uh, I actually reference it. Their diet in 1949 that was 85% a blue or purple sweet potato, 
5% of it was white rice, and the other 5% was soy, but it was miso or natto. It was not tofu. And so when someone like Dan, who I respect a great deal, says- yeah, Without his work, maybe the Blue Zones wouldn't be out there in the way that they're oh, talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but to categorize the Blue Zones with they all eat beans and rice is absolutely not true. Not true. Uh, the Adventist diet is very little in rice. I think I saw rice maybe three or four times in my tenure there over 18 years. But do they eat any beans? And if they are eating beans, do they still today, if we go down and drive, we're in Santa Monica, if we drive down to Loma Linda, are they soaking them? Are they preparing yeah, them they in do, that way? Do exactly. they pressure cooker? Yeah, well, they don't pressure cook, but they do soak. But interestingly, in Brazil, where they use rice and beans as their staple, they pressure cook their beans. Um, the mothers teach the kids that you have to pressure cook. Well, growing up, uh, I never was raised in India, but I would travel there every year. And my family's of Indian origin. I can never remember a time where we didn't prepare beans and lentils without pressure cooking. Yeah. In fact, my friends would come to my house as a young child and they were like, what the heck is that thing? I'm like, it's a pressure cooker. And they had no idea. They've never seen one before. And, uh, and so that's traditionally how lentils and beans, and it was primarily out of the, out of the fact of, I didn't, they did, my mom didn't know, or my grandparents didn't know that they're destroying lectins. They were doing it because of speed, the same way that somebody uses like an Instapot today right? and, uh, and taste. To infuse yeah. it with you know the flavors that they wanted to, but the byproduct was so. Just a, just a quick question on that: How long? So before pressure cooking, was it slow cooking? Yeah, I think you know I go to Tuscany a lot and study these little villages, and they actually do beans in a glass jar and they cook it for forty eight hours, slow boiling by the by the side of a fire. Uh, and you know I, I sit there and go. You know, these these people were so smart. They probably, they didn't know why they were doing it, but they always felt so much better when they did it that way. Um, I went to Sicily last fall to, because they're, they love tomatoes. Everything is tomato sauce. And so I would interview chefs and I go, so, you know, what's the secret to tomato sauce? And they go, well, first of all, anyone knows that you have to peel and de-seed your tomatoes to make tomato sauce. And I said, well, what do you mean everybody knows? Well, you know, everybody knows you can't have peels and seeds in tomato sauce because they're lethal. Why are they lethal? Well, because my mother taught me. Who taught her? You know, her mother. And it turns out that lectins in tomatoes uh, are in the peel and the seeds. And tomato is a very modern introduction. Uh, tomatoes are from the Americas. And right. they were only brought to Europe or to Asia by, you know, Colombian trade 500 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of, por like, Portugal trade and introducing that in uh, and introducing... Uh, peppers. Peppers to India, which was only started in the 1600s. Yeah. Prior to that, there was no... Indian food was not spicy the way that we think of spicy food. It had a lot of spices, turmeric and ginger and other things, but it was not spicy. Correct. So even for a lot of people that are out there, because uh, certain nightshade vegetables can have a higher lectin count. Tomato Correct. is one example that you're talking about. And people that are out there sometimes tell me, because I, I, I had before I knew about the lectin-free diet, I always knew that I was more sensitive to, to tomatoes. And when I stopped, when I would eat out at Indian restaurants and things, I wouldn't feel as, as good. And then I kind of got into my own food journey and stopped eating as much 
grains and lentils and beans just because I thought digestively I felt better. Mm -hmm. And gluten as well, I felt better, which I want to come back to because I know you have some thoughts on that. Um, but a lot of these foods, your argument is that they're recent. We forget history. They're recent introductions into a lot of societies. With that also being said, I mean, they've been to Italy many times, and there's a lot of places that don't de-skin and de-seed. And would you say that that's a product of modernization and efficiency? Yeah, I think absolutely that's a process of that. Uh, when you go, again, to these small villages, you really don't, you see the traditional way of, of doing things. I mean, just, you know, personal, as I've written about, my, my grandmother on my mother's side was from France, and she taught my mother to always peel and de-seed tomatoes before she served them. And we had sliced tomatoes that had been, she'd peel it over our stove, uh, just whip the peel off, and then she'd cut them and take the seeds out. And we had sliced tomatoes growing up, but they always had no peels and seeds. And when I went to Yale, it was the first time I ever had a sliced tomato with peels and seeds. And I thought that was the weirdest thing. You know, why would anybody do this? Because, you know, they're, they're crunchy and the skin is tough. And I go, why? what a weird way to eat a tomato. And of course, that's the way everybody else was doing it. So you mentioned one thing about gluten, and then I want to talk about some of the myths and go back into aging. Okay. So you mentioned that uh, a lot of people take out gluten or go on gluten-free diets, then lose their ability to tolerate it. They introduce it back in. Now, I'm not sure if this is true, so I would love you to chime in on it. We had Ocean Robbins, uh, founder of the mm -hmm. Food Revolution, mm -hmm. and, the, and his uh, grandfather started Baskin Robbins. Yep. He said one of the problems with a lot of the genetically modified foods that are out there is that they are genetically modified to increase the lectins in there. Is that true? That's actually true. Uh, part of the way they're genetically modified is to insert lectins. For instance, the snowdrop lectin is put into BT corn. The tomato uh, that most people eat has had a lectin, additional lectins inserted in the tomato because lectins was the plant defense system against right. being eaten by insects. So it's funny. I mean, GMO folks know that if you want to make something more resistant to predation, you insert more genes that produce lectins. And yet, you know, my critics say, oh, lectins don't have anything to do with it. Well, apparently, most people who genetically engineer, you know, crops know a whole lot that lectins are, you know, the defense system. So I guess that's one of the challenges with a lot of the the wheat in, in the U.S., especially because it's GMO, is it, you know, are people reacting to the gluten? Or are they reacting to the, the GMO foods or the glyphosate? Yeah, I think it's glyphosate. I really do. Um, I think we have to be aware that glyphosate is now used on non-GMO crops as a desiccant. And it's used on almost all wheat, almost all oats, almost all soybeans, almost all canola in this country to dry the, the plant out for because it's easier to harvest. These, you know, huge mega corporations, these uh, combines, these harvesters cost over a million dollars a piece. And you have to have a, a field ready to harvest on a particular day and not depend on weather. So what they actually do is, okay, you know, field X is going to be harvested three weeks from now. We're going to go spray field X with Roundup. Field X is going to die. It's going to dry out. And then our 10 combines are going to be there. And 
Then we'll move on to field Y that was sprayed the next day. And so this has been mechanized into drying crops with Roundup so that you can harvest it. And then nobody's going around with a little cloth washing the glyphosate off the corn and the soybeans and the wheat and the oats. They're then fed to animals and they're put in all of our breads, all of our cookies, all of our crackers. You probably saw a couple of weeks ago that they looked at 35 oat products on the shelves in our stores. And all of them had, most of them had significant beyond tolerable levels of glyphosate in this product. I mean, Cheerios, for instance, sure. um, granola bars. And so what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is two things. Uh, glyphosate absolutely makes us more sensitive to gluten, but probably most importantly, people need to realize that Monsanto patented glyphosate as a antibiotic. They did not patent it as an herbicide. And what that means is an antibiotic kills bacteria. That's the definition of an antibiotic. It's a patented antibiotic. So we now know that glyphosate kills our intestinal bacteria. And work out of MIT shows that, forget even all that, glyphosate in and of itself causes leaky gut, breaks tight junctions. So we've unleashed, you know, this Pandora's box. Most California wines have glyphosate in it because the weeds were between the rows were sprayed. Hmm. Even a couple organic California wines have glyphosate in them. It's incredible. <laughs> we are living in a modern day experiment. Yeah. And uh, nobody knows how it's going to turn out, but it's not looking good. Okay. I want to go back to the core themes inside your book because there's so much about longevity that we want to touch on. But thank you for giving that basis of, of understanding on, um, on lectins because it's a core part of your work and it's a big part of what you want to introduce into the conversations of, of healthy eating. So in your book, you talk about the myths of, of, uh, of aging and longevity Correct. and the things that we think that supposedly keep us living longer and how they may not be. Now, I want to touch on some of those uh, myths. We've already covered them a little bit, but mm -hmm. one of the core ones is that, you know, you see a lot of headlines that are out there that talk about the Mediterranean diet. And how the Mediterranean diet, which has a lot of research behind it, absolutely, uh, is one of the diets that some of these blue zones are eating. What do you like and what do you not like about the Mediterranean diet? And what are some of the myths that are out there about it? Okay. So I think the number one beneficial effect of the Mediterranean diet is the consumption of polyphenols. And polyphenols are plant compounds that we now know our gut microbiome eats and benefits from that and then takes those compounds and makes them available to us. Polyphenols, uh, we used to think that polyphenols were antioxidants, but as uh, the chairman of the poly polyphenol conference that I go to every year says, anyone who thinks that there are antioxidants in polyphenols, just leave the room because I don't have time to convince you that there's no such thing. Because they're not in there? Yeah, they're not in there. Uh, they work in totally different ways. But so olive oil is a huge part of the Mediterranean diet. And the polyphenols in olive oil probably are some of the most miraculous things that you can ingest. Now there's 
a myth that oleic acid, which is mostly what's in olive oil, is somehow this marvelous monounsaturated fat that's really good for you. There's nothing particularly unique about monounsaturated fat like oleic acid. It's what that oil contains in terms of the polyphenols that are the beneficial part. And the more polyphenols it contains, the better, quite frankly. Why do we want olive oil? Number one, it grows brain cells. And that was, I think, the striking finding out of the Spanish study, the PredMed study, that looked at 65-year-old people. To simplify it, uh, one group had to use a liter of olive oil per week. Two of these, basically. Right. A and massive they, amount. They actually had to exchange their bottle at the clinic and get a new one every week. So that was their control. The second group ate the equivalent amount of raw nuts. And the third group ate a low-fat Mediterranean diet. So they all ate a Mediterranean diet. And the initial study was for memory. And it turns out the olive oil group and the nut group actually had improved memory over the five years of the study. Improved. The low-fat group had diminished memory, which, you know, you'd expect. You're getting older. So it actually, we now know, looking at how that happened, is that the components in olive oil actually stimulate brain-derived neurotropic factor. BDNF. So why wouldn't you, you know, want to consume this stuff? The other thing that is fascinating that came out of work from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, we know that bacteria in our gut love to take certain animal proteins, particularly carnitine and choline, and make a rather nasty compound called TMAO, which absolutely stiffens blood vessels, and probably is a major factor in atherosclerosis. Components in olive oil and balsamic vinegar and red wine actually paralyze bacteria. They don't kill the bacteria, but they paralyze the enzyme systems of bacteria so they can't take choline and carnitine and turn it into TMAO. And you know, it's actually a huge credit to the Cleveland Clinic researchers who originally wanted to prove that animal protein is really bad for you because it produces TMAO. And then they said, well, wait a minute. You know, in the Mediterranean diet, they, you know, they eat sausages and salamis and they eat a lot of fish, uh, but they don't have much heart disease. What gives? What's going on? What are they doing? Yeah, what are they doing? And lo and behold, they found these components that, you know, paralyze the bacteria so they can't make these. And so I've heard you say on our, our, our you were on my friend's uh, podcast, uh, Mike Mutzel. So you talked about one of the things that was traditional, let's say, in, in Italy and some other places in the Mediterranean, that this could be one of the reasons why people would have wine with a meal. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, we can get into you know the social aspects of uh, wine consumption, and the striking thing is that wine is a beverage that's consumed with a meal. It's not consumed at happy hour, right. um, and so I think we're we're beginning to understand that there are components of the Mediterranean diet that prevent some of the bad things from happening. And I argue in the book, and there's evidence that, for instance, grains and beans may in fact 
be a negative part of the Mediterranean diet that's compensated for by all these positive aspects of the Mediterranean diet. And I think you gave even one of the examples uh, was uh, that you had in your book was the was it in Sardinia the the autoimmune disease yeah, that yeah. was inside there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Sardinians, another blue zone. Uh, the Sardinians do use about a liter of olive oil per week. Uh, interestingly enough, the longlived Sardinians live near the top of hills, so they actually don't consume much fish. They do consume a bread that's made out of buckwheat and wheat, and they actually eat about 10 pieces of bread a day. But they have the highest incidence of autoimmune disease in all of Europe on this island of Sardinia. So... And as you know, uh, over now, half of my patients are autoimmune patients who come to see me. And I'm convinced that autoimmune disease is merely a manifestation of leaky gut. And I, I say that, I've published on that. Um, so I think they're a good example of maybe what not to do. Uh, so sometimes we look at these societies and we think of them as like good and bad. But there's, I think it's part of your work is that it's a lot more nuanced. There's things that they're doing that may be working really well. And there's other things that we could benefit from. In their instance, is the autoimmune, just from what research that's there, and you may not have an answer for it, is that a new phenomenon for them? Because are they living longer and they just have autoimmune? No, is they a actually, recent thing? well, that we don't know. Uh, they're certainly not exposed to glyphosate and things like that. They're not exposed to large amounts of antibiotics. They will soon be exposed to glyphosate because, as most of us unfortunately learned, uh, Bayer now owns Monsanto, right. and Bayer convinced the EU to allow Roundup into the EU. It had been banned, um, so I'm I'm afraid that you know, again, the genie's out of the bottle. Right. Well, I mean, ma many uh, functional medicine practitioners often say that their patients go to. Uh, Europe and New Zealand and, and other countries, and they're very sensitive to grains here and gluten, and they'll go and have grains and gluten in Europe, in Paris, in New Zealand. I took my parents to New Zealand about two years ago on a big family trip, and we were eating, I never eat bread, and we were eating bread almost every day, sourdough bread that they make yeah, over sourdough there. Sourdough bread, yep. And uh, we weren't really having any reaction. No, that's true. And I actually wrote about this in The Plant Paradox. I had a woman who's originally from Eastern Europe who lives in L.A. and had horrible irritable bowel disease, had two autoimmune diseases. And we got her all cleaned up perfect. She went back home and started eating you know, their yogurt and their breads and had no reaction. And she came home and said, this is great. You know, I'm cured uh, of my autoimmune disease. You know, look, I, I ate all this stuff. So she started eating our yogurts and our breads. And within two weeks, she was on the phone going, oh my gosh, you know, it's back. But I thought, and I said, no, because you were over in Europe and none of our crap is over there yet. It's crazy. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, it may change. So we may not be able to do that in the future. And we got to raise the awareness about things like Roundup. Obviously, there's a big a bunch of court cases that are happening right now, some big announcements that have happened recently of jury finding uh, Bayer and Monsanto uh, liable for creating, can you know, the link of cancer. Yeah, there's, of I mean, there's very interesting uh, animal data that supports that 
this may cause uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right. And I mean, it's pretty interesting from animal data. So there's something here. Let's talk about longevity and brain health. What are some of the ideas that you're introducing inside the book when it comes to us taking better care of our brains, especially as we get older, when it comes to things like uh, dementia and Alzheimer's? So I have a, a very large practice in the APOE4 um, mutation, if you will, the quote Alzheimer's gene. 30% of the population carries either one or both alleles of the APOE4. And I, I wish it wasn't called the Alzheimer's gene. I have now, I don't, I have four patients in their mid, now late 90s who carry that allele who do not have Alzheimer's. Now, one gentleman who's 97 is still, runs his company um, and runs it very well. I have one woman who's 87 who carries the double copy, the 4-4, which is unusual to make it that long. She does not have Alzheimer's. So my, part of my diet uh, is used, actually my diet is used by Dr. Dale Bredesen in his Recode diet. And uh, so we think that this is a very anti-Alzheimer's diet. Now, I think your female listeners and viewers should realize, as you know, is that females are more susceptible to Alzheimer's, get more Alzheimer's than males. Right. And that seems odd because females are clearly, you know, much smarter and healthier than men is a general rule. Right. So one of the things I talk about in the book, which is startlingly good news for females, is if you look at females who have a regular exercise program that started in early midlife and that's continued, these women who have now been followed will have a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's dementia than women who do not follow that exercise program. And the women who are going to develop Alzheimer's do so 11 years later than the non-exercisers. So, I mean, think about that. Let's suppose you, you carry that gene or you carry the double copy and you, instead of getting Alzheimer's at 80, you get it at 91. Well. 80, you know, 80, you know, 11 years of, you know, good brain. And then maybe in your 90s, that's when it happens. Wow. You know, if there was, if we were advertising a drug that had a 90% that. That success rate in, you know, preventing Alzheimer's, you know, these drug companies would just, uh, and again, you saw this week that another trial on the beta amyloid suppressing drugs failed miserably. Um, one of these companies looks like they may go out of business. So. Yeah, a lot of the data and research on uh, the drugs that are out there, uh, there was a big meta-analysis that was published in, uh, I think it was the American Medical Association's own journal, that some of these drugs are actually increasing the likelihood of Alzheimer's developing. Yeah, correct. Uh, David Perlmutter was on my uh, podcast a few weeks ago. And absolutely, they probably, rather than prevent it or slow it down, they may actually accelerate the process. So going back to your uh, the, the point for women, including regular exercise can dramatically cut down. And so let's link that into like practicality. What does that look like? So uh, I actually write people prescriptions for dogs. 
And many people have brought that prescription back, framed, and said, this is the best thing you ever did. I literally have a, a prescription. Go get a dog. Get a dog. Dogs yeah. force you to go out and walk. Uh, and I really think that, and dogs bring a wonderful mixed microbiome into us. They are out digging through dirt and sticking their nose where it shouldn't be. And people who have dogs have a much more diverse microbiome than people who don't. So it's a one-two punch. It's going to make more mi diverse microbiome, but it's going to force you to go out and exercise. But don't just go to the gym. You've got to find something you like to do. And I think we hear this on nauseam, but... Find something you like to do. Otherwise, you're just not going to do it. That's why gym memberships in general go unused because it's not a whole lot of fun. Besides your dog, what do you what do you like to besides walking your dogs? What do you like to do? So I do uh, I do a spin class um, about three times a week, at least twice a week, where I, I do you know hit training, high intensity interval training, spin classes. Because a lot of the data out there. It seems to be pointing in the direction that it actually is good to do some sort of having some sort of resistance, whether it's with weight or doing some sort of, because the question is always, you know, people come on this podcast, the question is always, is walking enough? Well, walking hills is enough, quite frankly. Hills. And, and, and I luckily live on a wonderful hilly area of Palm Springs, uh, and my dogs and I hike about two and a half miles every morning. Um during hills. Having said that, I have a program in the book of only five minutes a day where you're right, strength training is really the most important thing you can do. And in his later years, I got to know Jack LaLanne, who's really the godfather of nutrition and fitness in this country. And Jack used to say, there's only two exercises that a human being needs to do for perfect health. And that is deep knee bends, squats, squatting, and push-ups or a plank. Uh, and that's a part of my five-minute program. So, and the great thing about deep knee bends is you can do it twice a day while you're brushing your teeth. You're you're not doing anything else, and you know you ought to brush your teeth uh, at least a, a minute uh, twice a day, and and floss, please. Uh, but so while you're sitting there, just you know up and down while you're brushing your teeth, it's actually a great exercise. Because we know, as especially as you were giving the example about um, Edith. A lot of, as, as individuals get older, when it comes to like breaking like a hip bone, it's often just through just getting up and, and walking. And, and so just getting up, if somebody can't do a full squat and they're listening to this and they want to start, could just be getting up and down from your chair until you can then do a squat. Yeah. So some of these daily activities, getting in and out of the car. How many times do we see somebody who's a little older that has trouble getting out of a car? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're not balanced, you know, hold on to the back of a chair, hold on to your counter while you're doing these things. And, you know, you don't have to go all the way down. I hear people say, well, I can't because I have bad knees. Well, maybe you have bad knees because you haven't been doing this. And right. Chicken and chicken or the egg. Yeah. And it's like, you know, so many people, you know, move their bedroom down to the bottom floor in anticipation of the fact that they're not going to be able to climb stairs. Well, you know, the fact that you moved your bedroom down to the ground floor is probably why you can't climb stairs anymore. Mm. And maybe shoes play a role in that too, which uh, <laughs> is a whole other topic. Uh, 
Dr. Gundry, there's so much here that I want to get into. We'll have to have you back as a second time, but I, I want to come back to your central message. When it comes to, you know, it's funny, sometimes I hear my friends are about my age, I'm about 36, my age or younger. A lot of people say, you know, there's no way that I want to live to like 100, 100 years old or 110 because in their mind, they have this vision of the only examples they've seen are people who are, their their brain is turned, you know, completely off. They don't know who they are. Yep. They're unhealthy. They're sitting in a nursing home and they're like, I don't want to be old and not have function of my body. In fact, I think more people fear getting Alzheimer's than they do even getting cancer right. and other diseases that are out there, according to uh, some surveys. What's the picture and the vision of hope that you want to share with people of, of what's possible when it comes to longevity? You know, one of my favorite stories that I pretty much finished the plant paradox with was that I, I had an 85-year-old woman who had diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and she came to me uh, now uh, 12 years ago, and she said, you have to keep me alive because I have a daughter who's mentally disabled, and I'm her sole support, she lives mm. with me, and I can't die. And I said, okay, uh, but you know, here's what we got to do. Well, we, we recently celebrated her 97th birthday. This, wow. this woman used to be a model as a young woman, and she used to have bright red hair. Well, she's dyed her hair bright red. She dates men in their 80s, and she always comes to me. And she says, you know, I think they're too old for me. Do you think I could go after a 70-year-old? So here's a 97-year-old cougar who has no <laughs> heart disease, no diabetes, no hypertension, and... The point of all this is it's really never too late. You can turn things around. Now, would I rather have you start at a much younger age? Yes, I think there's evidence that the younger we start, the better we're going to do. But it really is never too late. And I, I bring up the example of a cyclist who in France who's 105 years old who didn't start cycling until he retired. He now has the fitness of a 50-year-old in terms of aerobic capacity, and he competes in cycling at 105 years old. And so that's, if we could compete in cycling and have the fitness of a 50-year-old when we're 105, I'm not sure you know, too many people wouldn't want that if, if we could give them the tools. And the book is, okay, you want to do that? Here's the tools to get you there. Beautiful. I love it. Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. It's out there. People can get it along with all the other rest of your books. And uh, you have your own podcast. For those that are listening here who are avid podcast listeners, give us like one or two episodes that just come to your mind that you uh, think our audience would uh, enjoy. So uh, we recently had Ariana Huffington on the importance of sleep, and a large number of people don't know that Ariana Huffington was one of these great individuals who thought four to five hours of sleep, you know, she was, you know, superwoman and she actually collapsed, uh, breaking her cheekbone and her eye on a desk one day. And it was a wake up call for her. So hearing her story and the tricks for sleep is, is really good. Also in terms of brain health, uh, David Perlmutter was on the podcast and we went into, I think it's the fifth anniversary of grain brain grain brain right and uh, 40% new content and we went into that so uh, a couple of good ones incredible 
Well, they can find you on social media and online. Gundry MD is the company and the book is out there. Check it out in the show notes. Dr. Gundry, thank you for being on the Broken Brain Podcast. Drew, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Pleasure. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.